coming up on Economics Explored. And that's one of the many problems of self-esteem. And Ayn Rand didn't, I think, at times saw high self-esteem came from evaluation. At times, uh, she believed it was a result of situations, which I just showed why that's not the case. But she didn't see it's an overgeneralization. Rating your behavior is good, but rating yourself doesn't make sense and leads to various problems. And she, she had at least one of those problems, thinking she was a good person. And one of the problems with high self-esteem is it tends to blind you to your faults. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 103 on why Ayn Rand's concept of self-esteem is unreasonable. My guest this episode is Dr. Michael Edelstein, a clinical psychologist based in the San Francisco Bay Area. He is the author of Three Minute Therapy, a self-help book for overcoming common emotional and behavioral problems. I wouldn't usually invite a clinical psychologist onto Economics Explored, but Michael has some interesting things to say about Ayn Rand, author of The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, books which celebrate entrepreneurs and capitalism. Former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan was once a devotee of Ayn Rand, and her work has fascinated many other economists over the years. So when a previous podcast guest, Professor Walter Block, suggested Michael would be a good guest for this podcast, and that one possible topic was on why Ayn Rand's concept of self-esteem is unreasonable, I thought I'd better get Michael on the show. I recall that when I was at school, teachers would tell us how important it was to have high self-esteem. Ayn Rand was certainly a believer in self-esteem and had incredibly high self-esteem herself, as did the heroes in her novels. But I was unaware at the time that the concept of self-esteem is controversial among psychologists. One of the leading critics was influential American psychologist Albert Ellis, who founded Rational Emotive Behaviour Therapy, REBT, the original form of what is now more widely known as Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, CBT. My guest this episode, Dr. Michael Edelstein, knew Dr. Ellis and is now a leading practitioner of CBT. In our conversation, Michael explains why the concept of self-esteem is unreasonable and what a more helpful approach to life is. Among other things, Michael and I end up discussing a technique I've experimented with over the years, journaling, which is something that is highly recommended by contemporary lifestyle gurus such as Tim Ferriss. Please check out the show notes for links to materials mentioned in this episode and also for any clarifications of points made in the episode. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions relating to this episode or previous episodes, then please send them to contact at economicsexplored.com. I'd love to hear from you. Righto. Now for my conversation with Michael. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Michael Edelstein, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Gene. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on, Michael. A previous guest of mine. Walter Block, uh, he mentioned that you'd be a good person to speak with about this topic of why Ayn Rand's concept of self-esteem is unreasonable. So I'll be keen to explore that with you because Ayn Rand is someone who is of great interest to economists. She wrote uh, 
some very famous books, uh, two of which are The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, which essentially argue for the, the merits of individualism and capitalism and proclaims collectivism and socialism as evil. So that, that's the general theme of, of those books. And uh, she's someone who is uh, a very controversial figure for various reasons. And uh, yeah, it'd be good to, to speak about that in our conversation. First, I'd just like to ask you about the various uh, things you do. So you're a clinical psychologist and you've got a website. You've written a book, Three Minute Therapy. I've written four books. One is Three Minute Therapy. That's the most popular one. And you've got a column in Psychology Today, which is the leading uh, popular psychology magazine. Is that how you'd describe it? I would, yes. Yeah. And uh, I'm a Psychology Today blogger. And my uh, column there is named after my book, my book, Three Minute Therapy. And I'm called The Three Minute Therapist there. But it's a psychology blog. Right. And uh, okay. Well, maybe we can chat about that later because I'd be interested in what three minute therapy is because. A lot of us would have the the impression that if you did want to get therapy, that it involves hours and hours spent on the couch in the anal- the office of a, a, a psychoanalyst or a or a psychologist. So yes, to think that yes. it's just it'd be three minutes would be uh, yeah that would be great if it were. But so I guess we can get to that later. But first, could you just explain what got you interested in? Ayn Rand's concept of self-esteem. And could you tell us, please, what it is, what it actually is? Uh, what got me interested in Ayn Rand is that in many ways, she has very libertarian, classical economic views and is very good on them. But she has this uh, strange concept of self-esteem where she flaunts self-esteem and thinks it's a great thing. And I have a very different view of self-esteem. Okay. So she had these great characters in her books like Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead, who was an architect. And he ends up, I forget whether he either set fire to the building or he blew it up, but there was a building that he originally designed and then they wanted to put neoclassical features on the building and he didn't like that and... uh, and they had other architects come in and modify his original design, so he destroyed it. And then in the court case, he argued for the the virtues of individualism. And there was a great movie that was made about it with uh, Gary Cooper, if I remember correctly. And, and yes. I guess that's when I first came across Ayn Rand. I thought, oh, that's an extraordinary way of looking at things. Uh, so that's, uh, I guess that's an example of someone with high self-esteem, high self-worth, and so does that mean they, they put themselves above everyone else? What, what, what are the actual implications of it? We don't know. I didn't read The Fountainhead. I read Atlas Shrugged. But I don't know if Howard Rourke did have high self-esteem or high self-rate worth. And that leads us into what self-esteem is. And self-esteem or feeling or having high self-esteem is an emotion. You feel esteem for yourself you feel good about yourself. So a basic issue is, well, where do emotions come from? And uh, the answer is emotions don't come from situations. That's the intuitive view. 
if I do a great interview and I feel good about myself, I don't feel good about myself because I did a great interview, because it's not situations that cause our emotions, but rather it's our thinking about it. So Shakespeare said in Hamlet, nothing is bad or good, but thinking makes it so. And the uh, famous Stoic Epictetus said, it's men's opinions about events, not the events themselves that cause their emotions. So that's a key principle of emotions. Emotions come from our thinking, not our situations. And it's a key principle of the therapy I do, three-minute therapy, that was devised by Albert Ellis in the 1950s. And uh, was my mentor when I was 18 and had all kinds of emotional problems. He was my therapist and cured me. So, uh, so that's the first thing to recognize. And then high self-esteem as an emotion comes from first rating your behavior. I gave a good talk or I ran a good race or Gene Tunney likes me. Uh, these are good things and therefore I'm a good person. So the problem there is overgeneralizing from the rating of your behavior. I ran a good race. Uh, so that's a rating of my behavior. That's good. And then saying I'm a good person as a result of that, that's an overgeneralization. And that's one of the many problems of self-esteem. And Ayn Rand didn't, I think, at times saw high self-esteem came from evaluation at times uh, she believed it was a result of situations, which I just showed why that's not the case. But she didn't see it's an overgeneralization. Rating your behavior is good, but rating yourself doesn't make sense and leads to various problems. And she, she had at least one of those problems, thinking she was a good person. And one of the problems with high self-esteem is it tends to blind you to your faults, because if you're a good person, then Obviously, either you don't have faults or you don't want to look at your faults because a good person doesn't act poorly. They just act well, good, and positively. And then she had various problems, like she was uh, addicted to nicotine and dexedrine, and she was addicted to caffeine. She smoked two packs of cigarettes a day for much of her life. And as is keeping with high self-esteem, she told her inner circle, don't tell anyone that I got lung cancer because of my smoking. And then uh, she ultimately died probably of lung cancer. And uh, for the rest of her life, she insisted that the word not get out that she had lung cancer. So that's a problem of self-esteem. You don't want to admit your faults, so you're not going to change them. Mm. She's certainly an extraordinary woman uh, and very, uh, well, individualistic, very, very driven, very much not wanting anyone to tell her what to do and she had her own way of living. There was a great telly movie. I don't know whether you saw it, Michael. Was it The Passion of Ayn Rand with Helen Mirren as Ayn Rand and Peter Fonda as Frank O'Connor, her husband, and they had... Uh, who was it? Eric Stoltz is. Was it Nathaniel Brandon, the psychologist, who was in her inner circle? Oh, yes, he was one of yes. her yeah. one of her devotees. Absolutely, yes. her right hand man. In fact, they had an affair while they were both married. Yes, yes, yeah, right. And yes, uh, and then when he decided he had enough of the affair, 
then she excommunicated him. So, uh, so she had various emotional issues there, as we all do, because we're all imperfect humans. But she wasn't uh, perfect, as many of her objectivist followers thought. No, no, that's right. And there's a, a note in the in the preface to The Virtue of Selfishness, which is one of her books. I downloaded on the Kindle recently, and it basically says how, oh, I'm no longer associated with Nathaniel Brandon in the revised preface to the book that she has. Yes, yes. Uh, and so he was a psychologist. So did he help her formulate this idea of self-esteem? Was he that's involved in that? That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I would guess she had formulated it pretty much when they met, but he helped get it out and he, he written a number of volumes on self-esteem and the desirability of self-esteem and how wonderful it is and those kinds of things. Mm, okay. So just going back to Ayn Rand and this idea of self-esteem. So this means that her characters or in her view, you get this idea of self-esteem, your self-worth from, great achievements. Is that right? That's so building exactly a railroad. Right. right. And yeah. the way Nathaniel Brandon put it is that self-esteem springs from your achievements. And he uses that word springs. And as I've just outlined, that's not how emotions work. Emotions come from our thinking about situations or about our abilities. It, there's no springing involved. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense. I mean, I'm a great believer in capitalism and individualism, and as I know you, I know you're a, are you a, would you describe yourself as a libertarian, Michael? Oh, very much so, yeah. And uh, the way I became a libertarian was I met Walter Block and he persuaded me I was a left liberal when I met him. Mm. And uh, we used to get together for, to play chess. And over the course of two years, he won the political debates and, I want a little more of the chess games. Okay. Could you tell me, what was it? Like, I know, that it, it, I guess it's hard to identify any particular argument that won you over. And I mean, that's not really how we change our minds. It, it's over time. How would you describe that journey? What led you to moving away from being a left liberal to a, to a libertarian? Well, a lot what of was argument it? and debate with Walter and shooting mm. down my various arguments supporting my idea of leftism. But there was a memorable discussion that got me over completely. The last mm. thing to go in my mind, not surprisingly, given my position at that time as a lefty, was gun control. I thought it's dangerous to let people carry guns. This is a bad idea, things like that. And then he got me over that by explaining the facts, the data, to uh, knock that down. Right, okay, okay. And what I'd like to ask now is about Atlas Shrugged. You mentioned you read Atlas Shrugged. So were there any particular examples in Atlas Shrugged that struck you as uh, egregious, I suppose, that stood out? Well, there was one. Uh, did you read Atlas Shrugged? Yes. Yeah, so you, you could uh, help me if I don't remember this yes. accurately. But I think there was one scene where, uh, I don't remember his name, but he seduces Dagny. There was Hank Reardon, who was the industrialist. Yes, right. Hank yeah. Reardon seduces, yeah. more than seduces, I think rapes her. And mm. is, is that right? Uh, 
I think so. Yeah, there's a certainly a scene in the Fountainhead. I'm, I'm, I think her seduction scenes were very aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. That's putting it nicely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, she thought that was okay because they shared their values. They were both heroic and things like that. Mm. But uh, I'm against uh, the initiation of force, fraud, coercion, which includes rape. So uh, I didn't think that was such a good idea. Or I didn't think yeah. that was so legitimate because they shared their values. Yes, and uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons why Ayn Rand is controversial. And there's a scene in The Fountainhead which is very similar oh, yeah? with uh, Howard Rourke and Dominique Francon, if, if I get the name right. Uh, so yeah, I'll put some links in the show notes. But I guess that is one of the reasons why people find Ayn Rand, like even people on the right or even conservatives or classical liberals, a lot of them would find Ayn Rand uh, quite quite objectionable. And, and the other thing that makes her controversial among people on the right, of course, is that she was an atheist, whereas now what we find on the right, particularly in the United States, is that uh, many on the right are, are actually uh, very religious. So that's one reason she's uh, yeah, she can be controversial. Yeah, and there are, I've met a number of libertarian Christians also. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so Darren Brady Nelson is uh, a friend of mine. I think he might have introduced me to Walter. He's associated with Heartland Institute. And, uh, yes, he, he would be in that, uh, that category. Okay. Could you tell me about, uh, you mentioned a psychologist. Was it Albert Ellis? Uh, yes, Albert Ellis. Uh, when I was 18, I had all kinds of emotional problems and I came across Albert Ellis and I started to see him and uh, he dramatically changed my life. I was on the verge of getting kicked out of college because I procrastinated so much on doing studying and I was very, very shy. I wanted to have dates and meet uh, women, but uh, I was very shy about that, reserved afraid of getting rejected, those kinds of things. Mm. And after a couple of sessions, it might even have been after the first session, I started talking to them and asked a few out and those kinds of things. So, uh, so he was very, very helpful to me. And he's relatively famous, isn't he, or influential, because he has a Wikipedia page. Yes, yes. He was and still, he's no longer alive, but he was and still is very influential. And when I was uh, a young man in graduate school and went to psychology conferences and ran into other psychologists, and I mentioned Albert Ellis, they only had negative things to say about him. Oh, he's too intellectual. That doesn't work. You have to go deeper into people's childhoods and things like that. And now these days when I mention Albert Ellis, almost always they say, oh, yes, I do some of that. So, right. So he really caused a revolution in psychotherapy. And I wrote a book about that uh, called Therapy Breakthrough. And ther the title, Therapy Breakthrough, refers to the breakthrough largely impelled by Albert Ellis's work from traditional therapy. And we could discuss some of the details of that at, at some point, if you like, to yeah. more modern therapy he is the founder of the movement. He's written over 80 books and uh, very influential, as you mentioned. Okay. And what's the movement called, Michael? Uh, the movement is called 
well, there are various names, but his therapy is called rational emotive behavior therapy. The more, the larger term for it is cognitive behavior therapy. Yes. So a lot of therapists these days, at least in the U.S., say, I do some cognitive behavior therapy, uh, which Albert Ellis really founded. Okay. Yes, this is of great interest to me. One of the recent episodes I did was on how do we know what we know and uh, looking at science, considering science. And and in that conversation, I talked about Karl Popper's view of, uh, I think it was Freudian Freudian theory. Yeah, falsifiability. Yeah, yeah, and everything goes back to our childhoods and... And, uh, and and we've got these deep-seated issues, uh, exactly. Oedipus complex or whatever. Uh, and uh, and Popper said that, well, it wasn't very scientific because it wasn't falsifiable. That's I think that was right, exactly, a- exactly. Yes, yes. So could you tell me a bit more about this approach and your, your three-minute therapy, please, Michael? Yeah. So, and I have a book called Three-Minute Therapy and a podcast called Three-Minute Therapy Podcast. And... Uh, the therapy starts with where our emotions come from, as I mentioned, comes from our thinking, views, attitudes, beliefs, not from situations. So if I get fired and I feel depressed, I'm not depressed because I was fired. I'm depressed because of what I'm thinking about it. And that's a very mm. powerful idea because if you are depressed, anxious, angry, guilty, or procrastinating or have addictions, then you can change that by looking at your thinking that's causing that and then use the scientific method. Look for evidence for your ideas that are causing that and normally you'll see there is no evidence for those ideas. And uh, looking a little deeper, most ideas that cause emotional disturbances come from escalating our strong preferences into demands. Must, should, supposed tos, have tos, which lead to global evaluations. Not I did bad, but I'm a bad person. Or not you're treating me poorly and I don't like that, but you're no good. Or not I have problems in my life, I better work on them, but rather I have problems in my life Life is horrible. So it, uh, this mm. kind of thinking overgeneralizes from situations to global evaluations. So I help clients identify their thinking that's causing their anxiety, depression, or anger, what their musts and shoulds are, and uh, help them question that, look for the evidence for that. There's never any evidence for musts, shoulds, supposed tos, have tos. They're all fictions. And they all lead to uh, practical problems. They're not pragmatic at all. They tend to make things worse, and you can change that. Mm. So you helping people, are you empowering people? Are you you're helping them figure out, well, what are those positive steps they can take and giving them responsibility for their lives? Is that essentially it? Yes, and that's exactly right. Gene, and the way I describe it is teaching, I teach you how to be your own therapist. So I teach uh, clients these concepts, these strategies, and these ways to look for the evidence, challenge their thinking, and revise their thinking, get a better perspective, a must-free and should-free perspective, where they have preferences, 
I strongly prefer I don't get hit by a truck tomorrow, but there's no reason I must not. Reality is reality, not what I think it must be. So I had better look both ways before I cross the street if Mm. I strongly prefer not to die tomorrow. But there's no reason things must be the way I want. I don't run the universe. I don't control uh, things. I can influence things by looking both ways. I can uh, I'm likely to keep myself alive longer so I can influence those things, but I don't control them. Okay. And so why is it three minute therapy? Is it three minutes a day or like what, why is it three minute therapy? Yeah, great question. Great question, Gene. And the answer is I teach people what I call three minute exercises and we could run through one briefly now that mm. they work on, uh, on their own, practice it and, uh, it's called three-minute therapy, named after the three-minute exercises, and the reason called three-minute exercises because if you practice it on a regular basis and get good at it, it normally takes about three to five minutes to do one of these exercises. Okay, yes, yeah. If you could take us through one of those exercises, please. Michael, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, sure. So the exercises uh, are in the form of A, B, C, D, E, F, and A is the activating event. So let's say A is, I got fired. Mm. And then we skip B for a minute and go to C. C is undesirable emotional consequences. I felt depressed. So A, I got fired, the activating event. C, the emotional consequence, I feel depressed. But now we know it's not A that causes C. It's not getting fired, the situation that causes me to be depressed, but rather the missing link is B. B is my belief about it, what I tell myself, my ideas in my head. And as yes. I outlined, it's some must or should, because it's demands that cause these emotional problems like depression, not situations. So in this case, an obvious must could be, I must not get fired. I should have a job. I must not be unemployed. I have to pay my rent tomorrow as uh, my landlord wants me to. So I have all these musts that lead to my depression. So that's A, B, and C. Any questions about A, B, or C, Gene? No, no, that all makes sense. So then that's diagnosing the situation, the problem, A, B, and C. Then we go on to D, E, and F to developing a new perspective. So D stands for, and this is where the more scientific part comes in, D stands for disputing or questioning the irrational belief. And that's where you look for the evidence. Is there evidence for this belief? Or is it more in the line of Santa Claus, a fiction that there's no evidence for? So Mm. D is what is the evidence? I must not get fired. And then we think about that. Can I think of any evidence for the must? That reality must be other than it is. And then we normally come up with E, effective new thinking, or effective new perspective, and that's thinking like, although I strongly prefer not to get fired, it's a bad situation, but there's no reason I must avoid what I prefer to avoid. It is very disadvantageous to be fired, but hardly the end of the universe or even the end of my world. I I don't like this situation, but I definitely can stand what I don't like. I've survived difficult situations in the past, and I'll probably survive this. And uh, 
rather than belly aching about losing the job, I had better get get down and start looking for another one. And finally, mm. uh, reinforcing the BC connection, which is it's not having gotten fired that causes my depression, but rather it's my irrational must thinking about it. And with practice, I can change my thinking. So you work on that, you work on this whole thing, and then you get to F, a new feeling. A new feeling is not a positive feeling. This is not feel-good therapy, but a new feeling are negative feelings, but appropriate negative feelings, not putting myself down or musting, but rather feeling things like very frustrated, sad, regretful, disappointed, but not depressed or hopeless. So as you can see there, B causes C, the irrational belief causes the undesirable emotion, and E causes F, a new perspective, change your thinking, change your life, a new perspective leads to F, a new, more appropriate, adaptive, helpful emotion. So that's the mm. three-minute exercise in a nutshell, and that's really the whole approach, REBT, Rationally Motor Behavior Therapy in a nutshell. So I encourage my clients to write out these three-minute exercises regularly, and I tell them, you know, it's not how frequently you see me, unlike traditional therapy, it's not how fre frequently you see me that's going to help you as much as practicing, questioning, challenging your must, absolutistic thinking, uh, do that again, again, again. Think it through, just like learning a language. The way you learn a language is through practice and repetition. Doesn't mm. happen overnight. So it's the same with this. It, it's based on the same learning principle. Practice and repetition and reinforcement are the ro royal road to learning. So practice, practice, practice. And then act against your musts and shoulds. So risk going to interviews and being rejected at one interview mm. or another or risk running the race and risk coming in last and sell yourself again and again. It's not the end of the universe and it never makes you a bad person, just the person who did poorly at these things. Yeah. Oh, that sounds, that sounds great, Michael. And I think journaling would help, wouldn't it? So this is something you could do in your journal. So I've noticed that a lot of the, right. uh, the gurus of you know the internet age that people like Tim Ferriss they'll recommend journaling and just trying to explore your emotions and thinking about things and like if you get it down on paper it's more likely you can think hope well hopefully you can think rationally about it and figure out the next steps if you put it down on paper and another thing Tim Ferriss recommends I think it's in Tools of Titans or one of those other books and it you just made me think of it then was he would say go into a Starbucks and ask them for a 10% discount for no real reason. <laughs> Just yeah, ask yeah. them, for, can you give me a 10% discount? And that teaches you to expect, uh, you know, to be able to deal with rejection. So That's I thought right. that was quite... Yeah. yeah now, I wonder yeah. if he got that from Albert Ellis. Albert Ellis had these famous shame-attacking exercises, which you just illustrated how it works, mm. or you uh, put a leash around a rock and you walk your rock <laughs> in public... Or on a sunny day, you walk around with an umbrella or you wear one red sock and one white sock, uh, things like that. As you said, to risk rejection, show yourself it's not the end of the world if people think you're an idiot. And you can unconditionally accept yourself 
as the imperfect human you are, no matter what other people think. So this approach goes for unconditional acceptance, unconditionally accepting yourself. If you do poorly or people don't like you as the imperfect person you are, unconditionally accepting others if they treat you poorly, not liking their treatment, but accepting them as imperfect humans and then trying to do something about their treatment and unconditionally accepting life. When life goes poorly, accept the fact this is the way it is. There's no reason to commit suicide. Mm. Just see what you can do about it. So unconditional acceptance is the goal. Yeah, so I'll have to find out whether Tim Ferriss acknowledges where he got that idea from. It's very possibly he has studied psychology, but he's a very uh, very intelligent man. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'll look into that. Um, one last uh, question I have, Michael, is it, I wonder if you've – to what extent do – those broader societal factors or policies, do they affect our attitudes? And have they, like one thing that has possibly occurred in Britain and in, in Australia to a lesser extent, and that because of the welfare state, and this is something that has been proposed by some observers and, and people who've worked in the system. So there's a famous, uh, well, there's a, there's a doctor who worked in the public health system in in England, uh, Theodore Del Rimple, who wrote a great book called Life at the Bottom, and he wrote a column in The Spectator for a long time. And his hypothesis was that the British welfare state, which is uh, much more extensive than the one in Australia, ours is more targeted, so we, maybe we don't have the problem to the same extent, but it just reduced the capacity of people to actually improve their situations. They felt that it was the broader society that was the problem, that... Uh, the reason that they were were in poverty was that they were always poor. They they were disadvantaged. There weren't any opportunities uh, for them. Uh, if if they did something wrong, if they you know if they committed a crime, well, it was because they were poor and uh, disadvantaged, and yet therefore they they'd be treated leniently by the system. So there was this view, like he had this view that the welfare state had actually reduced their capacity to improve their situation and. And it was difficult for him to see how these people could get out of that. They were stuck in that mindset. Yeah. Have you thought about that or have you encountered that sort of thinking? Yeah. And is it, is, yeah. yeah. I think the, the, the way I look at it is societal factors influence our thinking, but they don't control our thinking. And evidence mm. for that is we have many people who have risen out of po- poverty and um, one example is Larry Elder, who was uh, – in California, there's a recall election coming up to recall the governor, and Larry yes. Elder is one of the people running. And he came from a poor family, and uh, I believe Thomas Sowell came from a poor family, and Walter Williams came from a poor fa- family, and they didn't let those factors control their thinking. They moved ahead with their life and uh, did very well as economists. Uh, so that shows that societal factors can control you, they can influence you, and it can make it hard for you, but usually not impossible unless they throw you in jail for using drugs or uh, Mm. something along those lines, then that makes it difficult. But even in jail, there are people like Eldridge Cleaver in jail who was part of uh, the the Black Panthers in the 60s Mm. and... uh, he was put in jail and he wrote a book in jail called Soul on Ice. 
So he was he was an author in jail. Now, most people would be influenced too much by the situation to do something as creative as that, but not not uh, Eldridge Cleaver. So that shows even bad conditions can't stop you from moving ahead, usually, uh, although they can influence you. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to, to put it because if you look at the data, then clearly if you're from a more advantaged background, you're probably going to do better in life. There's more likely you'd get a higher paid position, but that doesn't mean there's not movement from the bottom. And the risk is that if you're at the bottom or if you're in a lower socioeconomic group, then if you think that, oh, it's, it's a, yeah, society is, uh, is conspiring against me and, and people in my cohort, then that's not helpful, right? That's not a helpful way to think. That's not going to help you get out of it. So uh, well, Society I think the, might be conspiring against you, but to conclude, therefore, I'm a helpless victim of society, that's not yes. helpful. Yes, that's a good way to, that's a good way yeah, to put because it. Because yeah. there are these laws that make it more difficult uh, for people to uh, move ahead, but usually not impossible. Right. So what, what, what are you alluding to there, Michael? The laws that make it difficult for people to move ahead? Oh, uh, minimum wage laws, for example. Affirmative okay, action yep. laws. Okay. Anti-gun laws, anti-drug laws. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, certainly anti-drug laws uh, mean that, yeah, that's why the US has such a high proportion of its young black population in jail is because of the the drug laws isn't it yeah that you that's have a big in the, part in of the it. states yes, absolutely yeah. yes yeah absolutely okay any final points before we wrap up michael i've found this fascinating it's made me think a lot more about uh yeah psychology and uh and uh the way to to actually improve things and uh i think it's i think it's been great are, are there any final points before we wrap up yeah there are, are a few one is you had mentioned tim ferris's journaling yes and, yes uh, the three minute exercises that i discussed is the more specific things you'd write in your journal so just okay. writing things in your journal how your day was what you liked, what you didn't like things like that i can certainly be somewhat helpful but if you look at your specific thinking that's causing emotional problems uh, your demands and question, challenge them and contradict them, then I think you can make journaling even more effective. Okay. So, I mean, so what, um, yeah, what Tim Ferriss argues at a minimum, what you do is each day is you put down, well, what am I grateful for? What are some things I want to get done? What are my aspirations? That sort of thing. But then I think, I think he does say, if, you, if you've got more time, then try and go a bit deeper. And that's what you're suggesting. Think about those concerns. And, yeah. and the way you just told me he structures the journal, the journal, and mm. like, what am I grateful for? What are my goals for today? I think that's very yeah. good. And I give that to clients as homework assignments to, uh, oh, good. to write down your goals and uh, make a list of your uh, strengths and uh, make a list of uh, I just uh, was talking to someone whose sister was uh, very difficult to deal with so make a list of the positives of your sister she's not an all bad person that doesn't mm -hmm. mean you have to like her but feeling angry at her resentful doesn't help and anger and resentment come from a global evaluation 
she does X, Y, and Z, therefore she's no good. But as an imperfect human, she also does A, B, and C, which could be some mm. good things. So regard her as an imperfect human who acts imperfectly and then figure out how you want to deal with her obnoxious behavior, whether you want to try to influence her to change or never see her again. Those are various options. But getting angry and resentful certainly doesn't help the situation, tends to eat you up inside, and so you're better off without anger. Absolutely. I think that's uh, that's a great message. Uh, and, yeah, one we can probably wrap up on, Michael. Yeah. Uh, so 3minutetherapy.com, three, is that where we can find you? I'll put a link in the show notes. Yes, yeah. yes. So 3minutetherapy.com, the name of my book. Three is spelled out, the word, not the number. And on my website, I have my email address, my phone number, so uh, anyone can contact me with questions or disagreements. I like to deal with disagreements. So, uh, so I'd be happy to speak with anyone. Your clients, I mean, how do they, uh, interact with you? Is that, you've got a, an office or a, uh, you've got your own, uh, set up there and which city are you in, Michael? I forgot. I'm in a small city called Tiburon, which is just North of San Francisco. Yeah. Right. And okay. I had an office. I rented an office in San Francisco, but with the lockdowns, I gave up my office and saved some monthly rent, which was very good. And now I do all the therapy remotely, phone, Zoom, Facebook, Skype. And I have clients all around the world. I've had clients in Australia, actually. Yeah. Okay. So there's always an opportunity to contact me that way as well. Okay. And have you found that it... It's uh, it's different if you're doing it over Zoom or if it's in person. I mean, are there? I mean, there must be. Would there be? Ben- there must be benefits in person. I'm guessing, but uh, I guess if Zoom's the only option, that's that's fair enough. Have you noticed any sort of differences in effectiveness at all? I have not, and okay. uh, the clients seem to like it. And some, and I have surveyed my clients and said, if I continue on uh, remotely on Zoom or Facebook. I mean, FaceTime or Skype or by phone, would that still be of interest to you? And they've all said, yes, it would be because it's easier for me. It's easier for them. It means no traveling for them, no traveling for me. Uh, I do it in my living room and they do it in their living room. So there are many advantages and I have not found uh, um, any kind of side uh, side effects or problems with that. And just like our interview, if I was sitting there and you were interviewing me, mm. probably it would be pretty much the same. Same questions, yes. same answers, those kinds of things. So it's uh, pretty much the same with my therapy. Now, there are more traditional types of therapy, which looks at the relationship and are you making any faces or things like that? <laughs> uh, are you moving away from me or moving toward me? But I don't really think that's very helpful. I think that's barking up the wrong tree. The right tree is, what are you thinking? That's what you can change that will make fundamental dramatic effects in your life. Okay, very good. Okay, so if you're listening in the audience and uh, and, and you're interested in what Michael has to say, then please check out his website and, uh, and possibly think about getting in touch with him. Okay. Dr. Michael Edelstein uh, from 3minutetherapy.com. Thanks so much for your time. I really enjoyed that conversation. Oh, I enjoyed it also, Gene. And uh, I loved your questions. They really got to the heart of what I'm doing and how I think. So thanks so much. Okay, my pleasure.
Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.